Hey there, welcome back. My name is Allison B. Young, and this is Gathered Storied Botanicals. The last Valentine's Day, I worked a floral job. There had been a pop-up shop at a high-rise building in downtown Chicago. Drawing from the inspiration of European-style open-air markets, my boss had set out a stand filled with bouquets in a wide array of colors and blooms. It seemed to be a strategic place to draw the attention of last-minute men buying for their wives, girlfriends, their mothers or daughters, as they came and went for lunch breaks or headed out of the office for the day. As the evening rush hour crowds thinned and the building's lobby began to quiet, we decided to pack it in. We talked a few stragglers passing by into taking some remaining flowers at a discount, all the while cleaning up our vases and buckets. A middle-aged woman stopped to stare admiringly at some of the flowers left over. She approached us with a certain reticence as she clutched her purse close to her. I greeted her and offered to help her pick something out if she liked, but she said nothing. She was just looking, apparently. I've never been much of a salesperson, but I tried one more time. We still have a lot of beautiful things to choose from, I offered. She stared at a bouquet of hyacinth and lavender, a large dahlia bloom peeking out of the paper in cellophane like a bright face looking up to her. A look of disappointment came over her then. Oh, they'll just die. And with that, she walked out into the city streets. She's right, I guess. Bringing something into your home that will only be bright for a week or so, only then to have to clean up the macabre-looking remains of dead flowers and... The sour-smelling green water may not be worth the money for some people. I get it. Flowers, in many ways, are also a luxury. Like art or fine dining, I understand that's not something everyone can enjoy. But I'm struck by how often customers, or potential customers, like to tell me this. They'll just die. As if this is something no florist has considered before. Whether I'm sitting down with a bride and her wedding planner, or helping someone pick out flowers from the cooler, the short lifespan of these blooms seems to be a point of contention for a lot of people, even edged with a level of resentment. It seems perhaps something many of us are trying to reckon with. I wonder if seeing flowers can remind us that we too are in a state of deterioration and ultimately demise. It's one of the very few certainties that we have in life. We are all going to die, but that doesn't seem to stop us from doing what we can to cling to our youth a little longer or eke out the goldest of our golden years to preserve ourselves for posterity's sake, if nothing else. And that's to be expected, right? Every living thing on this planet is just trying to survive, whether that means trying to eat healthy, dabbling in ancient Chinese herbs, taking pictures of the people and things we love, to updating our homes with the latest, greatest appliances or security measures, or even changing out of flower arrangements water every couple days. We are all working to preserve something. The idea of preservation works almost subliminally when working with flowers. 
for how subtle an idea it is, yet how pervasive it can be when I'm making an arrangement. It feels instinctive. Once the stems are cut, it's a matter of racing the clock. What can we do to extend the life of this flower? Or else, how can we alter, transform this short-lived creation so that we might have it for just a little longer? How can we hang on to the things we care about, the things we love, for just a little longer? As it turns out, humans have been tinkering through the ages and finding ways to do just that. Some of the earliest known floral arrangements date back to ancient Egypt. We learn in grade school that this is the civilization that built the remarkable pyramids and had developed very particular very meticulous methods for preparing the deceased for the afterlife. This preparation or version of embalming gave us mummies. And it strikes me as especially curious that they did the same thing with flowers. Deep within the arid darkness of these momentous structures, these sacred spaces, garlands and bouquets of dried flowers were discovered adorning the dead in their tomb. To preserve flowers today, the most common method is air-drying them, which isn't so different from what the ancient Egyptians did. One source lays out the steps for the process. Divide the flowers into small bunches and tie them off in a fan shape. Hang upside down in a warm, dry, dark place. The heads should not touch, and this process takes one to three weeks. Though not all flowers can be dried this way, it seems to be more and more common to walk into a flower shop and see bunches of roses, herbs, and ornamental grasses hanging from the shop ceiling in their own kind of mummified state. Despite how instinctive the need to preserve flowers has felt throughout the various florist jobs I've had, I don't think this idea had been fully realized in my mind when my boss and I pulled up to those gates during my first flower job. I left you at those gates at the end of the introductory episode, and so I'm bringing us back, picking up where we left off. The cryptic name Aldbrass was little indication as to where we had arrived. We had come a long way, from downtown Charleston to just outside the rural and remote town of Yemisee, South Carolina, all to deliver orchid plants to this strange and kind of mysterious place. And it only became stranger once we passed through the gate. The dense, wild vegetation gave way to a pristine emerald lawn. Towering live oak trees shaded the open space, and Spanish moss dripped from their limbs. Flowering bushes of bright pink azaleas could be spotted off at the end of the driveway, where a low, brown and gray-green building stretched out before us. Everything seemed to glow with the lushness of a jungle, yet was manicured with complete precision, a peculiar mix of wildness meeting order. And even from the distance of the driveway, I could see the building's unusual angles how it hungered close to the ground. First seeing it, I was reminded of something from the Far East, a samurai's helmet or armor. 
Also dotting the front lawn were pens or enclosures. One housed an albino peacock, another a spotted wild cat similar to a smaller leopard. Zebras grazed in another with sheep. And these weren't eccentric lawn ornaments like some extravagant version of those plastic pink flamingos you've probably seen. These were live animals living in this South Carolina landscape. Had we crossed into an episode of The Twilight Zone? My boss would later explain to me that the owner was a movie producer who rescued aging zoo animals in need of a place of retirement. As we drove further along the red gravel drive, she also told me this place, Old Brass, was Frank Lloyd Wright's southern plantation. It's probably safe to say that we know the name of the renowned architect Frank Lloyd Wright, and perhaps one of his most famous creations, Falling Water. I even remember glimmers of the Roby House in Chicago from art history classes, but I had never learned or considered really that he had ventured out this way. Had never heard the name Old Brass before, which turns out to be a Welsh twist on the former name of the area, Old Brass. This truly felt like finding a diamond in the rough. The origins of Old Brass began in the late 30s when a Charles Lee Stevens, an industrialist from Michigan, had done some work reorganizing the Savannah River Lumber Company. Part of his fee for service was receiving these large swaths of land that sat on the Cumbahee River. He then commissioned Frank Lloyd Wright to build a plantation that, as one source puts it, would reflect contemporary use and economics while remaining true to its southern root. A plantation is typically defined as a large farm on which most of the work was done by slaves meaning most plantations were built prior to the Civil War. Old Brass never grew crops on a commercial scale or used slave labor, so from the beginning, Wright was finding ways of shifting, or perhaps even an attempt of redeeming the land, the idea and shaping of what a plantation could mean. By 1940, Wright had all the initial drawings and plans finished. Where the more traditional plantations took on a neoclassical style of architecture, Wright's design was a far cry from the regal and bold-looking columns and dramatic facades. Hexagonal shapes and inward-sloping walls were the main design features of the house and complex. The property would consist of a main house, a guest house, as well as additional cabins, stables, and other outbuildings. The exterior walls were made of cypress wood, trees native to the region, and Wright made a point to avoid all right angles, instead setting things at an 80-degree angle to emulate the slant of the live oaks covering the property. The gutters and downspouts of the house were created out of geometric patterns of copper and shaped down from the roof in dramatic angles to echo the color and hanging effect of the Spanish moss. Using the natural and native materials for the buildings makes me think a bit of another way artists and florists can preserve flowers, and that's by pressing them. It can be as simple as placing a blossom or autumn leaf within the pages of a heavy book and letting the weight hold down its shape and color while slowly pushing out any residual moisture 
It can also be as labor-intensive and lovingly produced as the Japanese art of Oshibana. The use of pressed flowers and other botanical matter to quote-unquote paint images goes as far back as the 16th century. It's said that it began as a practice of samurai warriors to hone and promote patience, a heightened level of focus, and a way of tuning into nature. Petals of flowers are painstakingly pulled apart and reshaped and repositioned on a canvas or paper to form images, the layers of a woman's dress or the wings of a songbird. The art form has taken on many variations or translations through the ages, from a meditative state of a samurai warrior to a leisure activity for many upper-class women of the Victorian era, pressing flowers in order to preserve them and give them new life or purpose reaches far and wide through time and culture. Even Emily Dickinson, known primarily for her poetry and solitary nature, had accumulated quite a collection of dried flowers and plants, known as a herbarium, which now lives at Harvard. It also wasn't until much later, drafting up this episode in fact, that I was able to articulate this connection between Frank Lloyd Wright's influence from Japanese art to his own aesthetic and his architecture, all through this filter of the natural world, to see it through sheer petals and leaves, instead of the delicate blossoms of a violet, Wright took a cypress tree and through this large-scale translation formed a new artistic expression, a new aesthetic by preserving these wood panels, these trees. Perhaps also like the samurai warriors, Wright and Stevens who commissioned the construction would have to learn the same lesson of patience. Shortly after construction was underway, progress was halted due to World War II. Money to fund the construction ran low, so all brass would have to wait. For the impatient florist, another means to preserve flowers, and a more modern method is by using silica gel. The term gel is a little misleading because the substance actually resembles salt or sand. By covering the blooms with silica gel and sealing it off in an airtight container, you can speed up the drying or preserving process as the gel absorbs any moisture from the plant, leaching it away. But with any mode or practice or work to hone a skill, there is a level of trial and error involved. Or at the very least, obstacles come up. I know for me, I've made lots of mistakes. It's been learning on the job of all the different conditions that different flowers prefer or need to survive and flourish, or else it's been my own silly attempts to hang bunches of flowers up in my closet, or press a particularly striking blossom in the pages of my dictionary. The silver lining is that you can learn so much from screwing things up or simply by encountering these obstacles. For Ald Brass, there were plenty to overcome to see its completion and its own chance to flourish. Even when the funding returned to continue construction, progress was slow. Lots of changes and adjustments to the plans were made, 
Even a fire destroyed parts of the complex in 1952. A few years later, Frank Lloyd Wright died. And a few years after that, so did Charles Lee Stevens. Despite the attempts from the younger Stevens generations, the house fell into disrepair and remained unfinished. Perhaps it winds back to the idea of survival, but there does seem to be this sense of urgency in how we approach our own modes of preservation. It's so easy to get discouraged, even heartbroken over the failings we've had. It can feel like precious time and energy has been wasted, and perhaps it's a better way to scrap everything and start over. It's a little cringeworthy to think of all the flowers I've probably thrown out that may have had a few extra days to live in an arrangement, or because they appeared flawed in some way that made them unappealing for a bridal bouquet or something to sell to a customer. Even the very landscape of the Low Country doesn't seem to lend itself very well to preservation. Living in both Savannah and Charleston, my hair can certainly attest to the overwhelming humidity and moisture in the air, which we've learned doesn't bode well for drying out flowers, but also from the marshy and swampy conditions to torrential rainstorms in the summertime. Even as we experience harsher hurricanes and other weather systems, there is so much about the region that suggests it's trying to wash away or forget a perpetual state of decomposition or fading away. Why fight the inevitable? Why not just give in that nothing lasts forever? It is a force of nature, this urgency to reduce the vegetation back to its basic nutrients in pluff mud and soil, and generally speaking, worm food. Despite that disheartening inevitability, that reality, there is another force of nature at work. The idea of regeneration. So much of what we might view as decay, that reduction to those basic nutrients, those basic parts, are steps needed for things to come back, to follow through on that kind of preservation. And the human influence, our basic need to survive, can be one of the strongest translations of that preservation. I imagine over the course of many years, the unfinished construction of old brass developed a certain musk. Perhaps cobwebs clung to those copper downspouts, or even mold latched onto the cypress paneling. The wildness of the low country wrapping its vines and swallowing back the hexagonal shapes. Maybe even just from looking at it from the end of the driveway, it appeared to be wilting. But in 1987, that movie producer I had mentioned earlier bought the property. His name is Joel Silver. He produced the Lethal Weapon series as well as the Matrix trilogy. Being something of an aficionado of Frank Lloyd Wright's work, and having restored one of Wright's buildings already in California, the Buford County Open Land Trust reached out to him about saving Old Brass. And from there, Albrass was given another chance. New life breathed into the structure. I spent that afternoon following my boss around and helped replace the potted orchid plants around the home, refreshing a couple of arrangements and sweeping up any fallen leaves or dirt along the way. 
We sat under the canopy of the live oaks by a swimming pool to eat lunch. And despite those same nerves of starting a brand new job, I could not help but feel the awe of the building. I was dazzled by its intricacies and its connectedness to that plot of land. It was hard to believe that this house hadn't been here all along, that it hadn't grown up out of the earth in the same way the cypress trees rose from the waters of the Cumbahee River. The quietude of such a rural area, the serene calm of the river and woods, the power and resilience of the enormous live oak trees towering overhead. The Egyptians may have been the first to figure out how to preserve flowers, as well as develop floral design as a trade. Their ingenuity, creativity, and resourcefulness laid the groundwork for thousands of years worth of tinkering, adjusting, and preserving. For them, there was a clear sanctity to it as well. One flower held a particular significance for the ancient Egyptians, the lotus flower. Perhaps because the bloom opens in the morning and closes at night, the Egyptians placed a great deal of symbolism on this flower. It became a sign of rebirth and regeneration, and they drew many associations to the bloom in their religion. Ancient artists depicted the youthful morning sun in the form of their god Nefertem emerging from a lotus flower. Even the scent of the lotus, or water lily, was tied to the spiritual. To breathe, the fragrance was to breathe in the divine. So these flowers, among many others, were an integral part of celebrations, of funerals. They were gifts for gods and loved ones alike. We have been part of this cycle for ages. As humans, we can't help ourselves in trying to preserve and hang on to the people and things that resonate with us, and it seems we can't separate that need from the natural world. To survive is an act of preservation, and to preserve is an act of devotion. Gathered, Storied Botanicals is a bi-weekly podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode or are curious to learn more, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts or wherever you find audio and visit my website at gatheredstoriedbotanicals.com. That's gathered-storiedbotanicals.com. There, you'll find a blog with transcripts and sources, as well as information on the music and much more. There's also a link to Instagram where I'll showcase floral designs I've put together as a visual component to each episode. Follow along if you'd like to bring some flowers in your life. Please tune in for the next episode airing April 1st. No fooling. And thank you for listening. Until next time.